Welcome to this week's Investors Chronicle Personal Finance Podcast. I'm Lenora Walters and joining me today are my colleagues at Investors Chronicle, Kate Bealey, Deputy Personal Finance Editor, Emma Adjimang, Personal Finance Writer and Economist, Chris Dillow. Since the election of Donald Trump as US President last month, global markets have been rocked as investors have a whole new set of things to consider when positioning their portfolios not all of which will be clear until after Mr Trump officially takes up the presidency next year. Kate, you've been looking at how world markets have reacted, so which have been worst affected and why? Um, So the real dramatic moves have been in the bond markets, Um, so particularly long-dated US treasuries, but also, um, in fact, long-dated gilts have been quite affected, and also inequities emerging markets in Latin America in particular, I mean, think Mexico, for example, And I mean, this is mainly due to Trump's kind of reflationary fiscal stimulus and spending plans that he's pledged to kind of plough money into the economy and and boost markets. And markets have reacted to that and to this expectation that inflation will rise, that the dollar will strengthen and then potentially we'll get more rate rises. In the UK, we've got kind of similar patterns in terms of a slight uptick in inflation. And we've got a government talking about spending more, you know, shifting from monetary to fiscal policy. So we have the same thing happening with gilts as a result. Is it all down to the election of Donald Trump? Well, I think it's interesting. It's important to note that actually bonds were selling off before Trump was elected. I mean, we could see it from kind of September into October. And around around September, October, that was partly due to inflation kind of reappearing on the scene again. And also partly due to central banks across the world starting to kind of make some statements which implied that we would be seeing this move from monetary to fiscal policy. Markets kind of feeling that some central banks are reaching the end of the road in terms of QE and stimulus. So, in fact, we're talking about this as some kind of Trump reaction, which it is, but I think it's a trend that was was happening before as well. So what can investors in this area expect going ahead? Well, I think for a while we can probably expect more of the same. But I do also think this has been a very dramatic move considering nothing has actually happened. We don't really know what Trump will actually be able to do uh, when he gets in. Um, Yeah, and what, what kind of checks on his power will be. So I do wonder whether maybe this area is being a bit oversold, particularly some of the bonds which are not as long dated. But, you know, and that could, and that could kind of end in disappointment. Um, but we'll have to wait and see. I think this trend will, will stick around for a little while. Uh, Chris, do you think investors should avoid all bonds because of these movements? No, I'm not sure they should. The case for bonds has always been that they're a useful way of diversifying risk. And that case still holds up because if we were to see a decline in global growth expectations or an increase in risk aversion, we might well see equities sell off at the same time as bond prices rise. And it's still worth holding on to bonds um, as, as a way of spreading that equity risk. Also, I think you must remember here a distinction between really bond yields and nominal bond yields. Now, most of Trump's policies are clearly bad for inflation expectations and will cause us and have caused a sell-off in nominal bonds but there are some things that suggest that real yields might not increase very much and one is that some of trump's policies are bad for growth such as immigration controls and, and protectionism but also you've got to remember that the forces behind negative real yields haven't disappeared I mean, the private sector is still reluctant to invest. Uh, global world trade growth 
is stagnating and corporate profits in in the US are, are quite low and all of that suggests that real yields might stay low and if we get a shock to to growth or, or risk appetite they might even come down so I, it's still worth hanging on to a few bonds. Okay, now another issue seems to be upward pressure on inflation. So how should investors position their portfolios to address this? Well, the problem here is that protection against inflation is prodigiously expensive, um, simply because yields are on, on real bonds are, 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 are negative or, or very, very low. Um, so, so you're sacrificing a lot of returns here. And it might be worth asking whether you actually need inflation protection, because there's two sorts of inflation. There's the sort of inflation that would come at, the time, at a time when economic growth is picking up. Now, you've got protection against that, because share prices will probably go up in that, in that situation. The thing to fear is that inflation rises very, very sharply indeed. But that seems to me to be quite a remote risk for the time being. You know, and it's one that it might be too expensive to insure against. You know, so by all means, hold some index-linked bonds as uh, insurance against that very nasty risk. But I don't think there's any need to, to go out and buy full inflation protection. OK. Now, Kate, some areas actually soared since Donald Trump's victory. Um, what are these and why? Um, well, so biotech and healthcare were the, were the big um, ones, or the big one, I guess. And the the obvious reason why there was a real initial rally was the fact that Hillary Clinton would no longer be pursuing this kind of crackdown on, on drug price hikes from within the White House. Biotech's really been squeezed because of these fears over what she might do um, in terms of legislation for that industry. So that was a big rally. But then, in fact, it has come off again in particularly over the past week because people have realised that obviously Trump wants to re- repeal Obamacare, which is not great news for much of the healthcare industry. So there is a bit of a split there um, between the drug companies, I guess, and the funds invested in things like hospitals. But that has been the kind of marked, I guess, the, the, the marked up upward swing. Okay. And could any other areas do well going forward? Um, so people think that there's there's kind of a few areas that people think might do well. So, for example, funds invested in US smaller companies. And that's if you think that Trump will be able to kind of stimulate the economy and, and do, you know, good things for smaller businesses, domestic facing businesses. Um, there is also the potential uh, for, for kind of further biotech growth. So some people are saying that. And infrastructure is another big one, um, both in the US and the UK. We have a lot of talk about infrastructure spending um, and kind of big spending plans in general, which would benefit those funds. So it could be worth looking at some of those. OK, so what might be some ways to get exposure to them? Uh, so US smaller companies funds, there are things like T. Rowe Price US smaller companies, which uh, Jason Hollands um, at Tilney Best Invest has recommended. Um, infrastructure funds, there's John Lang Infrastructure Fund, and that's a closed-end fund, also yielding 5.4%. Um, they are quite popular because of that yield, quite consistent yield. Um, and finally, um, Adrian Lowcock um, has also recommended Woodford Patient Capital Trust. And that's a bit of a riskier one. And it's due to exposure to technology companies with high growth potential, which he thinks could benefit from, from a Trump presidency. 
Okay, now Chris, um, what areas do you think could benefit from uh, Trump's victory, obviously other than his family? I would be very cautious here, simply because it is the case, uh, as Kate says, that infrastructure companies uh, and, um, and, and small caps should do well if growth expectations pick up. But it's quite possible that that's in the price. I mean, we don't know how big Trump's fiscal expansion will be. We don't know the extent to which it will be offset by policies that are hostile to growth. So there's an awful lot of uncertainty out there. And that, for me, would be sufficient to make me very cautious about taking strong sectoral bets. OK, thanks, Chris and Kate. Now we'll just have to wait and see what he actually does. This week's portfolio clinic features a young investor who wants to save up for a house. However, this investor also hopes to make a return on average of 15% a year, which few assets or even top fund managers achieve, let alone relatively new investors. Chris, you are one of the experts who reviewed this portfolio. So first of all, how realistic is a target of 15% a year? It's pretty much very unrealistic. I work on the assumption that equities would deliver a real return of around 5% per year. That's in line with a long-term average, and it's in line with likely growth of money GDP look, look, looking ahead. And it is possible that we get lucky, that the, the market outperforms those expectations, but it is very, very unlikely that it will outperform by 10% per year for the next five years. So I, I would pretty much downgrade those expectations a long way. Okay, so what would be a realistic annual total return, let's say, for an investor? If he was simply holding tracker funds, um, I'd say 5% per year. One thing he's doing right here is he's trying to, 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 to buy momentum. And we know that momentum investing has paid off fantastically over the long run and, and might well continue to do so. But I, I don't see 10% uh, per year outperformance coming from that, especially as momentum investing carries um, quite significant dealing costs. Now, this investor also wants to grow his sum of about £90,000 to £300,000 for his house purchase over a period of five years. How long, realistically, should he expect to wait to uh, reach this sum? A lot longer than five years. It all depends how much he saves. And one thing, one thing he's doing absolutely right here is, is that he, he's saving a lot. And for a young investor, how much you save matters a lot more than what you save in, unless you do something, something very extraordinary. So he's getting that right. But he, he, even saving a substantial sum uh, each year, I would think that to get from ninety to 300000 will take you nearer to 10 years than, than five years, and possibly more than that. This reader's portfolio is focused on a small collection of UK shares, some of which are listed on the Alternative Investment Market, or AIM for short. Is this an appropriate allocation for somebody hoping to cash in and buy a house in five years? I don't think it is. I really, really don't like AIM shares. What we know ever since AIM began 20 years ago is that AIM stocks have done badly over the long run. And there seems to be... Um, a very strong reason for that, and that is that investors chase the small chance of big returns with the result that they pay too much for stocks that have the tiny chance of doing it extraordinarily well 
with the result that AIM stocks in general are, are overpriced on average. As a rule, I would avoid the market. The one caveat to that is that the AIM index tends to do less atrociously badly when its price is above the 200-day moving average, like, ne- like it is now. So that tempers my distaste for AIM stocks. But uh, even allowing for that, you know, I would be very, very cautious about the market. And for a longer-term investor, I would be much happier with, with mainline shares. Okay. Now, perhaps for this case, what roughly would be a more appropriate asset allocation? One thing he's doing absolutely right, I think, is being pretty much fully invested in equities. Now, the reason I say that is that he's got a large safe asset, and that's his job. You know, in effect, if the stock market falls, then he can top up his wealth from, um, from, from the proceeds of his earnings. You know, so having a high equity weighting, low cash weighting, is entirely reasonable. One complication here is that he wants to save to buy a house. And this might suggest a case for holding more construction stocks than the average investor. The idea here being that if house prices were to rise very sharply, he would suffer because they become even more unaffordable. But in that situation, construction stocks might also be doing well. So in effect, he's buying himself a hedge against rising house prices. Okay, and are there any funds or assets you would suggest to get exposure to these? If you're buying stocks directly, just just the house builders would be good enough. Now, you were talking about um, is equity versus non-equity allocation, and you think fair enough to have a focus on equity, but do you think there should be any non-equity assets in this kind of portfolio? Well, there already is. His biggest asset is a non-equity asset, you know, his human capital. Mm. And I I think that's more than sufficient, frankly, because the problem with cash and bonds is Mm. that they offer zero expected return or worse. So in order to reduce risk, you know, you're sacrificing a lot of return. And for somebody whose main objective is is to make money quickly, equities might be the the only only way to go. Um, And as I say, you can spread equity risk uh, from your earnings. Um, but you, you, you've got to be aware that, of course, that equities do carry that risk. I mean, on that subject, um, he actually does have between 3 and 4% of his portfolio in cash. Do you think he should turn that over to equities too? Or do you think he should, you know, what do you think he should do with his cash? No, I, I think there's always a case for holding a little bit of cash, even for the most aggressive investors, simply, simply because there's always a chance of some sort of emergencies cropping up, or there's a chance that the market might fall very sharply and you want to I- increase your exposure further. Um, so, so, so that small cash holding looks to me to be quite reasonable. Mm, and you think, think 4% is a good allocation or would, it, would you prefer to see less, more? It all depends on one's individual attitude mm. to risk. Personally, being, being very risk averse, I, I hold a lot more um, in, in cash. But then I've got you know, less human capital because I, I'm older. Um, he's in a position where he wants to chase returns, where he is risk tolerant and where he's got that asset um, that, that helps diversify risk. So for someone like that, a low cash holding 
it is reasonable. Thank you, Chris. Some really useful tips on portfolio construction. Now, when you're thinking of buying a fund, no doubt you have a look at its performance to see how good it's been. But do you ever think about its risks? It might be more appealing to think about how much money you might make rather than how much of your hard-earned savings and investment could wipe out. But it's still very important to have an understanding of this, especially as the investment environment is becoming increasingly uncertain. And there are a number of statistics you can analyse that aim to capture a fund's past risk-reward profile. Emma, you've been looking at these. What are some of the statistics investors can use to measure risk? So as you say, there are lots and lots of different methods. Two of the most common stats that investor professionals use are the standard deviation and the sharp ratio. And these are some of the stats that we looked at in today's in this week's article. OK, um, how do these work? So standard deviation, this tells you how spread out a fund's returns are and basically how variable its returns are compared to its average return. So if a figure is high, it implies the fund's range of performance is wide and therefore it's going to have greater volatility. With a sharp ratio, um, it's also called the reward to variability ratio, which I think helps to describe it. I mean, basically, it's a measure of how much return a fund generates for each amount of risk it takes. And to work this out, um, you look at a fund's return minus what um, the measure calls the risk-free rate. And that's basically the yield available on government debt. So after you've done that, you divide the figure against the standard deviation, which, as we've discussed, is to do the variability of a fund. So, so yes, that's how the sharp ratio works. OK, now have any downsides to using these um, statistics? Yes, I mean, there are, these statistics are obviously very useful, but they all have limitations. I mean, for a start, they're all backwards looking figures. So we're not going to provide you with information on possible future performance, which, you know, could be quite different to how things have been. And they each also have sort of individual limitations. So standard deviation measures all the volatility, and that includes both the upside deviation and the downside deviation. So, you know, it doesn't strip out whether it's been good volatility, if you see what I mean. And with a sharp ratio, um, if this has been calculated against a data sample that is unrepresentative of of likely future payoffs, that can also be misleading. So again, it's, you know, the, the data that's, that's used can actually give it a slightly skewed picture of, of what the fund's been doing overall. So bearing this in mind, what other factors should you consider? So there's a range of risk that these statistics won't look at. Say so, um, currency risk, for example, I mean, this is something that we've seen since the Brexit vote has, has um, led to sterling devaluation. I mean, that's something that wouldn't have been recovered in any of these sorts of statistics. Um, and there's also issues to do with country or style risk. Um, if the fund's in, in a particular kind of region that has is riskier, for example, emerging markets or frontier markets, um, that's not some, something that these risks are going to isolate individually. So you do need to pay attention to the context of a market the fund is investing in, as this will impact on the kind of risks that affect them. What would be some examples of funds that have good risk return profiles? Well, IC Top 100 Fund Lion Trust Special Situations um, was found to have solid risk return stats when we looked at it. And this is despite the fact that it's got quite a high weight into small and mid-cap companies. So you might think that would make it higher risk. But actually, um, if you look at its sharp ratio over five years, it's a figure of 1.20, which considering anything over one is is good. Um, and that's compared to it's the sector average for UK all-gay companies, which had a um, sharp ratio of 0.69. So 
very sort of big difference there. Um, over three years, Lion Trust special situations also has a standard deviation, which is broadly in line with the FTSE all shares. Um, but in that time, it's outperformed the market by 15%. So that's an example of a fund that's volatility of the same amount as the index, but better performance. Another fund that has got good stats is Jupiter Strategic Bond. And that has a standard deviation of just 3.31%. So that's not much variability of performance there. Um, but its sharp ratio is 2.16. And um, that's you know very good considering, as I said, one one is anything over one is good. And the higher the sharp ratio, the better. So that's a, a fund which has got good stats as well. Okay. Um, Chris, um, how useful do you think risk statistics are, um, such as the ones we've been discussing when choosing a fund? They're useful as far as they go, but they do have severe limitations. And in particular, I would be very wary of applying standard deviations to non-equity assets, because um, there's two particular risks that standard deviations don't measure that can be important. One of these is liquidity risk, um, the ease of of selling an asset. Um, Some assets can have quite low price variability simply because they're hard to sell and they get even harder to sell in bad times. This is the case with some property funds, um, which investors found themselves unable to sell in the immediate aftermath of of Brexit. And, And that sort of liquidity risk could easily Um, return in the event of a severe market downturn. So you shouldn't apply standard deviations as a risk measure to potentially illiquid assets. Nor should you apply them, I think, to higher yielding bonds, because the risk that high yielding bonds carry is uh, that they'll suffer a default. And past volatility of bond prices um, tells us pretty much nothing about the likelihood of a future default. Um, Bond prices can look very stable, until all of a sudden you lose 50% because um, the issuer defaults. So you shouldn't apply standard deviations in that case either. Okay, some um, useful points there. What do you think um, investors um, should consider when choosing a fund? Let's say the main things. Well, the main thing is, what does this fund add to my assets that I'm not already getting? You know, um, what, what risk factors does it expose me to? What does it protect me from? And Ideally, what we'd want to see here is a massive covariance matrix, which plot, which tells us how the particular fund has done um, when other assets have, have done well or badly. Um, so, for example, um, one factor here, obviously, is, is beta. You know, if a fund rises a lot when the general market rises, then it, it's probably exposes us to the risk of doing very badly when the general market falls. Now, that is probably not a good idea because the one thing we know um, from history is that it's low beta stocks that tend to do better. So one thing you should look for is the defensiveness of a fund. Not, not, not because the fund will rise if the market falls, you know, it'll fall when the market falls, but probably just fall by less. But you should you should look for for defensiveness. And there's an awful lot of equity income funds and quite, quite a few investment trusts that are, 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 are defensive. You know, they might sell themselves as an income fund, 
but for for me, for for, for, for quite in quite a few cases, their virtue is defensiveness. You know, you should also ask about cyclical risk. Is this fund likely to do badly in in the event of an economic downturn? That's not to necessarily to say that such funds are bad investments. You know, you might want cyclical exposure, but you've just got to be aware of how the fund is correlated with the assets you're already holding. Now, and what I would do is if, if a particular fund were, were on my watch list, I would get out its historic price performance and see how that performance has been correlated with the holdings that I already have. Thanks, Chris. And you can read more about risk statistics and funds of good risk-adjusted returns in Emma's article on the website and in the magazine. That brings us to the end of this week's show, so it just remains to thank Emma Adjaman, personal finance writer, Kate Bailey, deputy personal finance editor, and Chris Dillow, economist at Investors Chronicle. You can read more on how to position your portfolio to take on Trump, realistic return levels, and assessing a fund's risk in this week's issue of Investors Chronicle on the website. Thank you for listening and have a good weekend. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.